Well, last Sunday afternoon, I received a package of a couple of books that I had ordered from a couple of days before, and one book in particular was recommended to me by a friend. It was certainly a book that I uh, very much would not approach on my own without this friend's prodding or bringing my attention to this book. It, it was a, or it is a theological book, and it's a theological book about some of the most personal moments in a woman's life. It's about the woman's menstrual cycle, which normally consumes about two months of a woman's year, and even years and adding up of a woman's life. For decades, it's an integral part and a significant part of her own life, whether married or unmarried, whether in the church or outside of the church, whether healthy or unhealthy. This is something that all women encounter, and this book, though a theological book, was was written by a woman for other women to face the reality that this life is physically and emotionally very difficult for a lot of those who go through this. Now, the minor key of this book is how this is a topic that is rarely spoken about or written about or even talked about, even within families. It is something that is delicately or passively approached. But the major key of how women are to look, or the major key of this book and how women are to look, is that women are called, even by God, in the midst of these difficult times, to turn their attention, even through their pain and regular roller coaster of emotions, to the Savior himself. A woman's life, as spoken of in this book, and as many of you experience, a, a woman's life is painful. And what this text would even show, the text of the book, is that it is bloody. It hurts from the teenage years on until they're passing. Now, briefly, just an explanation of why I would read this book. When I started reading this book, Brooke walked by, looked at it, and was like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, this is a book that was recommended to me. It's a theological book. And she said, yeah, but why are you reading this book? And I was like, well, I don't really know yet. I'm only a couple of chapters in. She's like, that's really weird that you are reading this book. Why are you reading this book? And as I sat there reading on Sunday night and finishing the book on Monday morning, words about how women are are called to face the reality that this life is painful, there is a hope of a new life where there will be no more pain. There's a reality that God's plan of redemption doesn't discount these normal, regular, good pains of reproduction. For it was the promise in the beginning that had pain given to the woman, but not only for the sake of children, but for the sake of demonstrating that it would be one child in particular who would come from one woman in particular. The, the revealed understanding of the curse that was given in, in Genesis chapter 3 is the culmination of this book. Because it was Eve's sin that made the process of childbearing or womanhood painful. But it is the promise of redemption that even in these regular painful occurrences that make it all the worthwhile. Now here's why I say all this. They say that sermon introductions are supposed to catch your attention. And I'm willing to guess that this certainly caught your attention. And here's why I say all this. As I sat there reading this book with one strain of thought in the book, there was another strain of thought remembering that I had just preached on that morning, something that consumes or hangs over like a cloud so many of you. The reality of anxiety, the reality of worry is not something that you feel can just be solved with a clever or quick sermon, but it's something that you are enduring not once a month, not a few months out of the year, not through a couple of decades in your life, but your anxiousness or your worry is a total consumption of your entire life. 
And so I thought as I was reading this book of the desire to go back to the text again in Matthew chapter 6 and addressing once more how Christians we are to think about being anxious about tomorrow and how we're to think about how we are to worry properly about tomorrow. If you're with us as a guest, normally we go through books of the Bible or passages of the scriptures uh, a couple of verses at a time or a paragraph at a time or a chapter at a time. This is, this is going back to what we did last week, though taking it off just in two verses where last week I did nine verses. I want to just take you to the varying point just to hammer again, not because any of you said, though two people said in particular that, well, that wasn't that great of a sermon on that passage, so let me have another try at it again. Let's go to understanding what God says to us about what it really means to not be anxious for tomorrow or to not worry about tomorrow because it's not just something that maybe some of you endure and say, well, yeah, I'm just not a worryful person. But some of you, I know that it hangs over you to the point where you feel trapped up in it to where you can make no progress towards pursuing God and his glory. I want to first define a couple of those words. So if you're using an outline and the outline provided to you by the bulletin, I'm at point number one where I just want to quickly define a couple of these words. It's important for you to know that these were, what these words are and what they mean. Anxiety and worry in their context is important to us. Our passage this morning is on the tail end of not only the chapter, chapter six, but also it's a concluding thought that Jesus has given to us on what total dependence really looks like. We're to be dependent on the Father exclusively. That's why the Father is brought up 16 times in just this brief chapter. With everything, even our concerns about tomorrow, we're to be dependent on Him with those. And in a threefold fashion, He addresses what He rightly assumes will be our comeback when He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And our comeback is naturally going to be, yes, but what about the burdens of tomorrow that we're called to govern? And He says three times, Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. It's simple, everyone. Don't be anxious. When it comes to tomorrow, depend on the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Seek his will. And in the meantime, aim for his kingdom's righteousness. So with all that being said, what is anxiety? How can we define anxiety? The Greek word translated to anxiousness or anxiety, merimnau, it means, to sum up, it means to care for someone or something to a great extent. And in the context of this passage, for a variety of, of uh, counterpoints given to us in the New Testament, but also uh, later on Hellenistic reasons, it means our personal uncertainty shouldn't cause us to stir up feelings of needing control. For whatever happens is under God's control and his providential care. So we shouldn't be worried about the things that God has complete governing or ownership over because he's the one governing over it. So anxiety is really, you could say, an offspring or a delineation of fear. The word refers to the feeling of tension and concern about something awful that may happen. Something out there triggers an internal dread of impeding, impeding doom in our own hearts. Now, anxiety isn't, to, uh, isn't necessarily seen as uh, like a smell in the wind. You know, it's just naturally out there and you might catch it if you're in the wrong spot. Or it's not like the sunlight that if you just avoid the sunlight or outside, then you won't uh, come to it. But rather, it's an internal action or it's an internal reaction. It's in your mind and should be 
treated as something that is happening in your own mind. Anxiety is, in short, fear of something possible. Anxiety is fear of something possible. Maybe not even something that you can identify, but you, you think, here are all the ways that my life could go astray. That possibility, those imaginable possibilities, is what anxiety is. Now, this is how it differs from worry. Because worry has its roots in the same Greek word, but is translated to the word worry in its context. Uh, what worry refers to is the fear of something specific. Whereas anxiety is the fear of something that I can only imagine. I don't really know how it's going to happen. Worry is the fear of something specific. I'm worried about what she'll say to my proposal for marriage. Well, she's either going to say yes or no, right? I'm worried about she might say no. Versus if she says no, I'm anxious that my life may end in despair and loneliness. Right? That would be an anxious feeling. If you worry, the text will say, you're really worrying for nothing, like a, like a mouse on a spinning wheel. There's no distance that is gained by your operating of your legs or your arms. You, you staying up fretting about a particular event for tomorrow, that doesn't change God's providential work of tomorrow. You panicking late at night because of the test that you may have or the conversation that you have to have, you staying up freaking out about that, we all acknowledge that doesn't change anything about what God is unfolding providentially tomorrow. Now think about it. You cannot now physically change the future. We've all been a part of those movies or read those sci-fi books. We've all gone down that rabbit trail on, yes, but what if we could change the future? How then would we do it? You cannot change the future. So all you are left with to do is worry or be in joy and rest in joy. What Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, is to seek righteousness today. Work on today's issues. Don't worry about tomorrow. Get to work today. Something you can work through. Something that you can work on. Now, the reason I or you have anxiety or worry, uh, or the reason why I have these words coupled together uh, throughout the outline, uh, is simple. Some, some of you have particular worries about tomorrow or next year, or even lunch later on today. Some of you have imagined possibly unrealistic, anxious thoughts or anxiety about tomorrow. So I, so I have these bundled together, like defining anxiety and worry, because there's a particular case of how Jesus is talking about anxiousness and worry. Jesus, in the context of our passages teaching about where we lay our hope, is in the faith that our Father will provide exactly how He desires. And it's for his glory, and it's for the good of our people, even if we don't know what it may look like. You ever had a trusting relationship in someone that you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring with that, but you can't wait to get to tomorrow because you know it's going to be a wonderful and enjoyable experience with that person? You go, I have no idea what this vacation is going to be like, but I know it's going to be awesome because of what's been told to me or promised to me. I just know it's going to be fun. This is the context of what he is talking about. So those are the terms, anxiety and worry. Anxiety is about the, the imagined possibility of something. Worry is about something in particular going wrong or that we would imagine going wrong. Now, secondly, I just want to address our, our natural capacity for anxiousness and worry. All of you have a natural, God-given capacity for anxiety or worry. You have a God-given capacity for this. Now, why would God, you might ask, give me a capacity to be anxious? Or to worry, why would he give me that opportunity? 
we're given the capacity to worry or to be anxious, but also the word can be translated to care. God has given us a capacity to be concerned about or care about either people in our lives or situations in our lives or even tomorrow. We could have a righteous capacity to care about tomorrow. The opposite of living uh, Maranau life, which is translated into anxiousness or worry or care, the opposite of living that kind of life is a life that is sedated or numb, very passive. You think of your lethargic days or your lethargic actions towards others or towards God. That, that's the action of being sinful, where you are just passive in your own pursuit of either other people or God himself. And, and people who want to rebound often from being anxious, you think about people who are so consumed with their anxiety or their worry, and so they want to rebound completely, they often pursue things like drugs or meditative techniques or pagan philosophies to empty our mind from the worry around us and just just have a big skull on the top of our head that has nothing inside it because if there's anything inside it, then I'm definitely going to worry. The opposite of being anxious isn't to live a bleh or who cares life, but instead the opposite of how we're called to live instead of having anxiety or worry is to have a careful life or a caring life towards situations that God has placed us in. We have a capacity to see God and people through an unrighteous worry or anxious thought or a kingdom-focused caring purpose. Now, a now-passed-away Christian counselor, famous Christian counselor named David Powelson, uh, said that God-given anxiety at its root is a God-given capacity for knowing that something bad is going to happen in our world, either in the past, the present, or the future. This isn't always negative. There's a right kind of care that leads us to express loving concern for others in the midst of their trouble and draws us to take refuge in God when we are in trouble. He, he goes on to say, anxiety is like your car's check engine light. When it goes on, you know something is wrong with your car. And you don't know exactly what's going on in your car, but it's time to visit the mechanic. And the same is true of your anxiety. It's a, it's a warning light that something is troubling that's occurring in your heart. Now, friends, we are hardwired by God to be aware of good and evil. If you don't feel intense concern from time to time about people you're around, about the righteous pursuit of the Lord that you're supposed to attend to, or even about tomorrow, if you don't have an intense concern from those things from time to time, you are actually ignoring real trouble. You know, some people just kind of pridefully say, I'm not an anxious person. I don't worry at all. And it's like, I kind of feel like you're that passive dad or that really bad boss who just doesn't care. That's not righteousness. We are called to care. We're cared to call or we're called to care rightly. So instead of looking for a technique to numb yourself, you need to understand or you need to harness or you need to channel your anxiety in constructive ways. We all have anxious thoughts. The question is, do you spin them around like a mouse on a wheel or do you direct them towards something or someone who is perfectly righteous and in control of everything? What do you do with the concern or worry or care that naturally comes at you? Now, there are reasons for anxiety and worry. Thirdly, here, I want to tell you, there are, there are reasons for you to rightly worry or rightly have an anxious feeling or rightly to care. And so we've defined the terms, and they're reasonable and good because they're given to us by God. But why do we have anxiety or worry? 
If you look around, it's pretty easy to see why you would have anxiety or worry. But I'm going to give you three reasons. I think pretty general, so they're not amazing. They're just general. But first one, why do you have anxiety or worry? Well, because people die. Right? The harsh reality that all of us will die in everyone we've ever met has died or will die. No matter how good someone may have it, big news awaits for them at the end of their life. Everyone dies. And so for many, it causes so much fear. So they anxiously orient their lives to avoid death or to avoid the pain of approaching it. You think of how you're sold anything. You're never sold anything because you're going to die. You're sold anything because now you can really live, right? And so we might pursue things that actually build anxiousness inside of us because we don't want to die. But friends, you will die. And the question is, is how are you approaching it? Are you approaching it by seeking the kingdom of God? Or are you worrying about tomorrow, whenever you're going to pass may be? Are you righteously or fearfully approaching death? And your friends too, they will die. How are you approaching them? Are you approaching them with the grace that God has given you to to add to their life the righteousness that he gives us in godly fellowship? Or are you tearing away from them? By adding to their anxiety of like, you know, you're going to die too. But we have a second reason why we just naturally are anxious or worry. Relationships end. Not only are we going to die, but the relationships that we have, they end. They, they don't live on forever. These are huge sources of anxiety. We value relationships, but they change or they break apart. A spouse dies. A marriage fails. Children leave the home. Friends drift away or even turn on us, or even the fear of, I have to act a certain way, or this friend will leave me. I have to do a certain thing, or they won't like hanging out with me anymore. We, we fear loneliness. We fear us being separated relationally from anyone. We, we fear the loss, or the hurt, and the betrayal that comes from broken relationships. You think of how Paul ends his letters in the New Testament. Sometimes he is... Uh, filled with encouragement and joy because of how people have been great friends to him. And then there are sometimes where you see this righteous grief that is just overflowing from his pen where he says, even these people who you know hurt him, you know, give them grace. Greet them with joy. He's not running from it, but he's aiming to pursue God's righteousness through it. And the, the third category is not only will we die, not only relationships end, but also none of us think we have enough money. Even if we do live a long time, even with we do live with a lot of friends. And all of us fear that we will not have any money. All of us worry about money. We can't escape this. It's in our nature. They say the most tense things that happens within a relationship all centers around money. Not relational differences, not in-laws, not what house you live in, but just how you talk about and handle money. You can see how it's a master and the reason why Jesus talks about it. Money worries are all tied up in so many things. The idea of security, we need money for that. The idea of identity, we need money for that. The idea of status, we have to hold on to a certain status, and we need money for that. Each of us can be affected with how much or how little money we have, and it causes anxiety. Now, this list could get more specific. These things could turn into a hundred things. I don't want to discount what stirs up the anxiety within your own heart, but Jesus did say that in this, you, would certainly, you will certainly have trouble. In this life, you will certainly have trouble. He says that you will have trouble physically, you will have trouble relationally, you will have trouble practically. In this life, we are not in the new heavens and the new earth. 
And it should cause us to want to seek a more definite and encouraging understanding of what redemption actually is. Now, some of you just honestly endure a lot of trouble. Your capacity to feel concern or care about the trouble in your world is a creational gift that we see, but also you have an intense feeling of care towards other people or anxious thoughts or worries towards other people. And when you have concern, that red light or that engine light is flashing. And being anxious can cause us to righteously pursue the Lord with our all, our life, but it also anxiety can go the way, can go way off the rails. And so we need to see what Jesus has to say about righteousness. Like I said last week, what anxiety and worry really do and why Jesus speaks to us this way about it in this context, using these words, is because anxiety at their root actually reveals our very heart. Our anxiousness, our worry, our care, whether good or bad, actually reveals our natural heart. So fourthly, what anxiety and worry reveals is our heart. Anxiety shows what is really going on inside inside of our heart. We look around or examine what we're going through. We overreact to trouble. Or we become so upset about things that shouldn't trouble us. This, this should bring on the role, I think just naturally, of a godly friend, a Christian counselor, or a pastor through asking questions, peeling back the layers of fear or worry and anxiety. When you lash out in panic, you are revealing your heart in maybe ways that you don't yet fully understand. I gave the example last week of me possibly being stranded on a Saturday afternoon in an airport in Atlanta because I forgot my passport and I, my driver's license had expired. And I told you right then and there that I was in the midst of a huge internal panic. And my first thought was, I'm going to get fired. No one's going to like me. No one's going to preach tomorrow and everyone's going to go to another church. And all of this will be for nothing. And you might look at that and go, hey, man, you need to chill out for a second. It's just a plane ride. But what, what, what a good friend, a godly friend, or a Christian counselor or a pastor can do is start pulling back like, why did you naturally feel paranoid about that? Or why did you feel like that church won't survive without you on one Sunday? Or why do you feel like, like God needed you out of all these reasons? Or, or why did you think that that in this massive worldwide airport, there wouldn't be another flight for you to get on an hour later, right? So you can pull away and, like, what was actually happening in my heart? I'll tell you what wasn't happening. There was no sense of worship except of myself. Because I only thought about myself. I didn't think about you all at all. I didn't think about Brooke. Brooke went on through the line without me. And I didn't even care. I was just like, what about me? Right? It's amazing what our what our anxious thoughts or our worryful hearts can reveal about us, but what they really reveal about us is how, well, how broken our heart actually is and how needing our heart is to be replaced by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. The list could get more specific of what causes anxiety, but what it always reveals is our heart. Why did I immediately go to those different things? In every circumstance where, friend, where you feel sinfully anxious, you believe something is threatening your world. Anytime you are anxious or worried, you, you are feeling a sense of out of control of everything in life. Life seems to be out of control. You're afraid of the bad, and you're afraid that that bad will certainly happen. So you mentally or emotionally start grabbing the steering wheel in order to keep those bad things from happening. Common things. Common things that cause anxiety or worry. A love for someone. 
health, someone else's health, money, work, good coworkers, bad coworkers. These things can easily cause us to panic. And how you deal with your anxiety in any situation reveals your heart. How do you respond when you don't get what you want? How do you act when you do get what you do want? How are you full of fear when something goes wrong in your life? Or how are you full of fear when you don't even know what tomorrow is going to be? How do you have trouble sleeping when God is in control of every breath that you take when you're not even awake? Do you become obsessed with your problems? Does your mind go over your troubles again and again and again like your tongue goes to a sore place in your mouth even without your desiring it? All of these responses give you a window into your heart. They help you see which of your hopes, dreams, and wishes you have organized your life around. My case in the airport, I organize my life around my schedule and your love of me. Friends, that is idolatry on one and two cases. And it's a sin that separates us from the love and nourishment of Christ. All of these responses give us a window into our heart. They help us see what we are supposed to be looking at. Now, the Bible has very graphic phrases for the desires that are naturally in our lives. And it calls them lusts of the flesh, a lust of the flesh. Our modern-day use of this phrase focuses on a sexual passion or a lust for money, doing anything that you can to gain something that is outside of your control. If you are in a social situation or in the spotlight, you might feel anxious. If you don't have someone that someone else shows up with, you might feel anxious. If you feel hurt by something in the past so that something in the present really triggers your idea about something in the future that may or may not happen, actually reveal what is going on inside of you. Jesus is calling us to trust God completely with our money, with our relationships, with our friends, with our prayers, with our all. So how do we respond to anxiety and worry? We recognize that it's a God-given thing to care for other people. We recognize that it reveals our own hearts. We recognize that there are ways that we can categorize it with words like care or anxiety or worry. But what do we do? How do we respond to anxiety and worry? So finally, and the longest point, how should you respond to your worry or your anxiety? Now, first, I want to give you two caveats. The first caveat is this. I think, I think you and I have to be honest in acknowledging that anxiousness or anxiety is a highly complex, not only issue, but practical outcome of your internal soul. And so I would recommend that you live your life and how the scriptures teach you to live when you face something that is highly complex. When you're faced with highly complex issues or decisions or even tomorrow, what the scriptures call us to do is to live in the company of godly wisdom. Seek and surround yourself with a godly doctor, a godly friend, a godly counselor, because Satan wants to convince you to go at it alone. And he'll want you to seek worldly advice, not godly advice. Uh, the one and others in the scriptures are not just for the good times, and they're not just for isolation. They're for the building up of God's church, Christ's bride. So go at it, not alone, but with other people. And to build on that, there was a recent study that was announced late last winter where they did a, a mental health study on the first half of 2020 
compared to the first half of 2019, where they basically studied with the answer, are people improving in their mental health or are they declining in their mental health? And in all the categories, you could separate people. You know, we're very good as a population in separating ourselves into different compartments or categories. If you are black or white, your mental health declines. If you are male or female, your mental health declines. If you live in a big city or a small city, your mental health declined. If you are older or younger, your mental health declined. Whether you are 18 to 20, 30 to 49, 50 to 64, 65 plus, negative, 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 negative. Everyone's mental health declined except for one category of people. There is one category of people in this secular study where their mental health did not decline. And the one category of people is those who corporately gathered with a godly church. Worshiping together. Those are the one category of people. You think about 2020, and there's one category of people where things didn't get worse in how they viewed life, but actually increased because of who they saw was in control of everything. So friend, the caveat, the first caveat, how do we respond to anxiety and worry is do not go at it alone. Invest yourself in the lives of others and also receive the joy of godly friendship. Second caveat, and I want to clarify something that I probably didn't hit on well last week. Not everyone's ability to flee from worry and anxiety is a singularly spiritual endeavor. Not everyone's ability to flee from anxiety is just spiritual. Some people it is both spiritual and physical. To be blunt, your emotions are a part of you and impact you. Your home hormones are a part of you and impact you. Your mind is a part of you. You're, you're a two-part being, body and soul. It is good and understand, it is a good way to understand the scriptures. When Jesus talks about you, when God calls you, he calls you out body and soul. Your mind is a part of you. Your brain is wired to act properly, but some people, their body is what can be commonly called is out of balance. Or maybe to put it another way, their body is hurting even emotionally or mentally. Or they could be called chemically sick to where they are imbalanced. Think of it another way. A guy who has been looking at porn for years or decades, he has, in a way, rewired his brain of what is good intimacy, what is appropriate relational ability, what, what it means to really talk to someone or to receive someone talking to him, what it means to actually talk to a woman or even uh, be married to her or be intimate with her. He has rewired his brain of what is real and normal and good. And he has to spend, as messed up as he is, a lot of time and a lot of effort to rewire or undo what has placed him in this situation of sin to get back to the baseline of biblical intimacy and love. And for some people, so going back to the kind of emotions and um, our context for today, now for some people, they were either born chemically imbalanced or have gone through something physically or emotionally that, that triggers different chemicals to fire off differently than normally would have ever happened. Or they're just what is called in counseling not okay. And friend, I want to tell you, no one is okay. And a lot of people have a hard time after going through a great sense of trauma or crisis or, or physical seemingly disrepair, have a hard time just admitting or acknowledging that what is going on, it's not okay. 
And, and I want to tell you that God cares about you, friends, body and soul. God doesn't just care about your soul. God also cares about your body to the point where he actually promises you that your body today is not great, but it will be glorified in the new heavens and the new earth. That's how much he cares about it. So I want you to know that someday for Christians, we have hope that we'll be fulfilled where we will not be off or imbalanced or needing anything like ibuprofen or insulin or a chemical balancer. And there will be a day when you don't need to seek a doctor for help for your cloudy mind that leads to panic attacks or anxiety or just debilitating days or nights. There will be a day where you don't need anyone's help because you'll be in the presence of the great physician. But in the meantime, if your anxiety is debilitating, seek the common grace that is given to us by God. Seek help. Some people need to just get down to a normal level where they can actually start talking with someone about why did they go there? Why did that happen? Why did my mind wander off there? They need to be brought down to a base level before they can even talk about something. Things like medication, though, ask any doctor, will tell you uh, they help alleviate your symptom, but they don't overcome what is the root issue. And the root issue for all of us, whether we think we're good or, or not good or really not good, the root issue for all of us is our needing heart. And let me give a caveat to this second caveat. There's a third caveat. Don't kid yourself by thinking that because meditation, medication takes the edge off of anxiety. Or even things like a vacation or a girl's weekend, or a good movie, or a beer, or sexual pleasure. Don't think that just because those things distract you from the anxiety that you have in your midst, don't think that you don't have to still go through the hard, righteous work of learning to trust God and depend on Him in everything. And this is really the point of the text. It has one imperative. Seek. There's one thing that this text calls us to do. Seek. Not yourself, not another philosophy, not a sedative, but to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Brooke and I were with a couple of friends uh, a couple of weeks ago, and, and one of the, the husbands in this friend group just comically is a terrible dresser. <laughs> like, like, goodness, man, you're an adult. You're a nuclear engineer. Like, <laughs> stop wearing gym shorts to church, or anywhere for that matter. But anyway, and it, and it kind of causes her a lot of pain. Because she's like, God, you know, we're both professionals and blah, 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 and look at how he dresses. And, and as she was talking about it with her counselor, it became, it became understanding to her that, that one of the things that's inside of her is a hatred of her dad who left the family and only bought nice clothes. Never paid child support, but would always have a $20,000 suit. And then she saw through that what God provided. Someone who would never flee her like that. Someone who would never ever be tempted to spend any money on anything that was distracting from the family. God gave her, through, through the peeling back of these layers and the recognition that, that something that seemed to cause her worry, actually God gave her to bring her peace. It's incredible to see how God works for his children. But what are we to do? Worry for tomorrow enslaves us to another master. 
Worrying for tomorrow becomes our true master. You see how, how this passage in verse 25 where it says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, meaning your clothes and your money and all that, because it comes off the tail end of verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Even tomorrow can be our master. And in the scope of his heart, Jesus is saying to focus it on God, the object of your hope and faith, especially when you're worried. When you lose sight of God, we try to control our world instead of giving it over to him. So first, after the three caveats, I have two points on this final point. So first, know and trust the truths that God has given us from his word. When you're in his word, you'll find yourself remembering him instead of forgetting him. You'll find yourself remembering him instead of forgetting him. Paul David Tripp says, God wants us to know him so intimately and trust him so completely that our desire to fix our troubles in our own way will no longer consume us. As we grow in our love for God, we will experience the right kind of concern in the midst of our troubles if we see his testimonies day and night. Psalm 94 verse 19 says that when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations, God's consolations, cheer my soul. It's clear in this psalm, the author is aware of, of how his mind can, can spin out of control and get preoccupied with the burdens of tomorrow, yet it's, the, yet it's the consolations or the comforts from God that ultimately cheer him. Now second, so what do we do with our anxiety? First, uh, we know and trust the truths of God's word, what it says about us, what it says about him, what it says about providence, what it says about his sovereignty, what it says about tomorrow, what it says about tomorrow's tomorrow, a thousand years from now, or when the new kingdom of heaven will come and conquer all that is wicked around us. We trust that, and we know that word. But secondly, we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It is clear, the imperative from this text is to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This portion means the definition of an action of the gospel. What Jesus is talking about in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what he is talking about is seek the gospel. Now you've heard it here many times and hopefully you've heard it other places. The gospel is exclusively for Christians. It is the open proclamation to all to place your trust and rest in Christ, but it is the fuel for the Christian life, the truth of God. The truth of his glory, the truth of his love, the truth of his sacrifice, the truth of his promise, the truth of his presence, the truth of his kingdom that is coming, all of it, he's saying, seek it, attend your mind to it, seek it as you would seek food when you're starving, or clothing when you're cold, or riches when you are hungry, or any enjoyment in life, remind yourself of the gospel, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the righteousness of God which was revealed in the gospel and is what gives a right and title to the kingdom of heaven is something that is given to his children. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And don't you know that that is an incredible robe? This is not the righteousness of man that we seek, nor even the kingdom of our own that we try to build up, but one of God's. It is no other than the righteousness of Christ. It is what God approves of accepts, imputes, and justifies us with. It is Christ's righteousness that is to be sought and held onto by faith as the way and means of enjoying happiness. In seeking the gospel's truth, 
through the revealed word, you are going to remember many things. You're going to remember God's nearness as you seek him. He's not a distant God, for it was him who experienced firsthand the anxiety-producing pain of life, yet he pursued not his own will, but the Father's will as he approached the cross. Friend, you'll remember that the Lord is near you. You'll also remember that he hears you through your prayers. When you seek the kingdom of God, you remember that he is listening to you. We're told in Philippians 4, 6, a lot of things that Paul brings to our attention. But in the passage of Philippians 4, Paul tells us to make our requests known to God. And if you think about that for a moment, if the Lord is near, if he is someone who knows what's on your heart, who knows what weighs heavily on you and preoccupies you, then he is a hearer of his beloved children. Remember the works of Christ as well. Remember his protection in our adoption. We don't only just remember his presence or the reality that he hears us, but we also remember that he surrounds us, if you will, with a shield and a sword. Remember the work of Christ in this action, the summoning you to himself by the Father's pleasure and the Spirit's regenerating work as an adopted son or daughter. You are now and forever protected. Go quickly to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. I alluded to it earlier, but it's probably helpful if we just put our eyes on it. Go to Philippians chapter 4. And go to the, the probably paragraph of uh, verses 4 through 7. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. In our understanding that when we are pursuing Christ's righteousness, when we are pursuing the kingdom of God, we are able to remember our adoption. It says there in Philippians 4, Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There are particular things you could worry about in the context of any passage in scripture or any part of your life. But what Paul is saying is do not fear these specific things, but rather rejoice, pray, be thankful, and embrace the Spirit's gift of peace that we have through Christ, meaning he conquered not only sin, not only did he conquer death, but he also promises to raise us to new life. Rest in that peace. Remember what your adoption brings to yourself. The Lord is watching over you. Remember his protection brought to you by adoption. When you are anxious, remember that your guard is guarding you with his peace. Now, a couple of years ago, one of my favorite hymns, I'll close with this, one of my favorite hymns, and in fact, the second best hymn, I think, out there, the first one is a Christmas one. My second favorite hymn is Great is Thy Faithfulness. And I don't know why I love Great is Thy Faithfulness. There's some sentiment sentimental moments of it you know the the church that I grew up in it was the it was the founding hymn it was the first sound when the church first met but great is thy faithfulness and one of the things that drives me nuts in Christian music is when people take something really really great and they change it up a little bit so that they can sell you more copies of it right it just drives me crazy like don't redo this classic hymn don't make this thing different don't don't change the words out just let it be good if you're good enough at changing stuff write your own except there was one time a couple of years ago when someone added a different verse to great is thy faithfulness. Didn't take away from it, but just added a verse to it. And I love what John Piper wrote when he penned a new third stanza to great is thy faithfulness where he says, 
and you could sing, I could not love thee, so blind and unfeeling. Covenant promises fail not to me. Then without warning, desire and deserving, I found my treasure, my pleasure in thee. And he goes on, and it goes on, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for the day and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Friends, what do we do with our anxiety and worry? We remember that we have been pardoned from our sin. And we are given the presence of God that cheers us and guides us. It gives us strength for today and it gives us hope for tomorrow. Blessings, all of the blessings that are talked about in Matthew chapter 6 are given to us with 10,000 beside them. And then it goes on, the repeated phrase that we see in the Psalms again and again, great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All that I have needed, my hand is provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto thee. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we are grateful that even in the midst of many of us feeling in trouble, in despair, and out of control, we learn from your word and have the testimony of your spirit in our hearts, the knowledge that we can go to you with all of our care and concern. Lord, when we are tempted to be anxious for tomorrow, we pray that you would purge this from us that you would remind us of your faithfulness, that you would remind us of your son's work on the cross, that you would remind us of the created order that you promised to bring us back into, that you remind us that you are the Lord, and in you can we trust greatly. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.